Welcome to Inside Michigan Business Podcast. This episode is made possible by Dell for Startups, providing solutions for all of your startup needs at special savings. Check out Dell's top business class PCs and accessories and register at startupnation.com forward slash Dell to save on Dell's awesome lineup of best-in-class laptops, monitors, and accessories. Well, hi, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of Inside Michigan Business. I'm John Gallagher, journalist and your guest host today. And I'm happy to welcome Sam Abelsamit, who is a principal mobility analyst with the Guidehouse Consulting Firm. We're going to talk about electric vehicles and autonomous vehicles and the state of uh, what's new in the automotive industry. Sam is a mechanical engineer by training. He attended Kettering University here in Michigan. He's worked in the auto industry for more than 20 years. He's also an automotive journalist, uh, writes for Forbes magazine and others, and he has his own podcast, Wheel Bearings. So Sam, welcome to Inside Michigan Business. Thanks, John. Great to be here with you. Good. Well, let's start with electric vehicles. For guys like me that still are driving gas-powered vehicles, which I guess are still by far the, the main vehicles on the road, you know, some people may think that electric vehicles are not reliable, too expensive, don't have much range, the battery takes up the whole trunk, none of which is true anymore, correct? So what's the most, state of... Uh, most of it's not true. Okay. They're so, still a little, little on the expensive side for most people. But. Okay. So what, what's happening? Where are we in the electric uh, vehicle market right now? Well, we've made tremendous progress over the last decade. We've gone from 2010, Nissan launched the Leaf with, I think, about 74 miles of range, and we had a few other EVs in that 70 to 80 mile range you know, in the early part of the last decade. And now it's not at all uncommon to have EVs that get over three, in some cases even four or 500 miles. Uh, the Lucid Air was launched last fall with a range of 512 miles. And in fact, I drove here today in a Chevy Bolt EUV that has 247 miles of range. And the price point on that is starting at uh, $28,000 for the 2023 model year. So that's getting to the point that people can actually afford these. Yeah, no, it's yeah, it's definitely getting there in terms of reliability. They've generally been really reliable. Though, I mean, obviously there's there's fewer mechanical moving components in an EV. You don't have to do things like oil changes and so on uh, with an EV. You still have you know regular wear items like tires and wiper blades and bulbs and things like that. But for the most part, they require less maintenance than an internal combustion vehicle. They're certainly a lot more affordable to operate especially when gas is upwards of $5 a gallon, or if you're in California, 7 or $8 a gallon. You know, putting uh, electrons into an EV at, you know, 11 or 12 cents a kilowatt hour is much more affordable. So there's a lot of advantages to driving an EV. And, you know, they're also, unlike some of the very early EVs in the 70s and, and 80s that were experimented with that were basically glorified golf carts, you know, these things can be really quick really fun to drive. I mean, obviously, Tesla has demonstrated just how quick EVs can be. You've got vehicles like the Model S Plaid that will do zero to 60 in two seconds, and, and even that Lucid I mentioned, or or the Hummer EV that launched uh, recently, you know, a 9,000-pound off-road pickup truck that goes zero to 60 in three seconds, which is just, you know, that's bonkers. Uh, when I was growing up, you know, the thought of even a Ferrari getting under five seconds for zero to 60 was was unthinkable. And now to see these giant trucks and, and other vehicles that can provide that kind of performance is quite astounding. Yeah. And sound like the Ford F-150 Lightning, a big hit, I, I gather, a couple hundred thousand orders. So consumer acceptance is coming along here. Oh, absolutely. You know, there's a growing interest in EVs. We've gone from 
A year ago, first quarter of 2021, we were uh, about 2% market share for EVs in the U.S. And now as of May, EV market share is up to about 5%. So it's growing quickly. In fact, the demand and interest in EVs is growing faster than the availability. Manufacturers are still ramping up production of both the vehicles and more importantly, the batteries. That's actually probably the biggest bottleneck right now is batteries, building enough batteries for the EVs that people seem to be interested in buying. And even there, we've got between now and 2025, we'll have 20 new EV battery plants going up in North America. But then you need also need the raw materials to feed those, things like lithium and nickel and manganese and cobalt. And so we've got to develop that material production and processing as well. Yeah, I understand. That's that's uh, because of trade restraints and problems with China and so on. That's one of the big... That's, that's part of it. You know, until relatively recently, though, you know, for things like uh, lithium, for example... There hasn't been a, a, a lot of demand for lithium for EV batteries until the last few years. And now all of a sudden, you know, we're seeing this rapid growth and it hasn't kept up yet. Lithium is actually quite common around the world. It's a pretty common element. But we haven't developed the extraction and, and processing of lithium because there wasn't demand for it. So most of the lithium today for EV batteries is coming from South America or Australia and it's being processed in China. And so when you've got to transport it halfway around the world and then halfway around the world again to put it into, into EV batteries, that adds a lot of cost and also emissions from all that transportation. So localizing production of that stuff, whether it's here in North America or in Europe for that market or in Asia, be increasingly important to make sure that we get all of both the cost and environmental benefits out of it. Good. And uh, let's talk about charging stations. Is that uh, the big constraint that knowing where you can charge these things? Um, that is a significant constraint. So far, it hasn't been much of a constraint because the, the consumers that have been buying EVs are largely more affluent consumers because the vehicles that have been available, especially from Tesla, have been more premium priced vehicles. And so those customers typically live in single family homes with off street parking. And really, when you look at new car buyers in general, the vast majority of consumers never buy a new car. Most people buy used cars. So we're, we're only 10 years into this modern EV era. And so we're still very much in the early adopter phase. So the, the people who have been buying EVs up to this point, they can charge at home. You, know, you get home at night, plug it in, and you don't even have to think too much, unless you're taking a road trip. You don't have to think too much about where you're going to charge in public. But as you move forward and you expand the audience for EVs and you get to middle and lower income consumers, a lot of times they either may live in a multi-unit dwelling apartment or a townhouse or something, or even you know, in a lot of older cities, if they live in a single family home, they may have to rely on street parking rather than off street parking, off street parking. So you, know, you need to have more public charging infrastructure to expand the use case for EVs for those people. And then, you know, obviously for longer trips as well, we're expanding that infrastructure as well. And as you said, some people can plug in overnight and it's not a problem, but are there fast acting charging stations coming along? Oh yeah, absolutely. So, you know, at home you can easily charge a typical EV in under eight hours. And, and most of the time, 90% of driving is less than 40 miles a day. And a typical, you know, charging at home, you can do that in an hour. So that's not a problem. When you do need to take longer trips, we've got expanding network of DC fast charging stations out there and vehicles that can actually support it. For example, the new EVs from uh, Hyundai Motor Group, from Hyundai, Genesis, and Kia, those will charge at 230, 240 kilowatts 
which means I, I recently took a road trip to Wisconsin in a Kia EV6, and I charged it from 10 to 94% in about 28 minutes. You can get from 10 to 80% in under 20 minutes, in, in about 18 minutes. As you get closer to being full, it slows down the charge rate to protect the battery. But if you can get to 80% in 15, 17 minutes, you're doing pretty good. Because you know, if you're taking a long road trip anyway, you're probably going to want to stop, stretch your legs. You stop to, you stop know, for lunch. And yeah. Recharge take take and a quick bio go. break, you know. Yeah. So the idea if I want to drive from here to Chicago or here mm-hmm. to whatever, that's going to be possible with EVs. Without, oh, absolutely. Without yeah. worrying about it. Yeah. Um, I mean, in a lot of these newer EVs, you could do that trip nonstop today. Or, you know, you could stop partway in Kalamazoo or somewhere for 10 or 15 minutes. As I said, take a, take a quick break and, you know, top it off a little bit. And then you'll be on your way and get to Chicago, no problem at all. Good. Now, I've heard of something called regenerative braking with EVs, and it's sometimes an issue. What, what is that? So I wouldn't say it's an issue. So one of the beauties of electric vehicles, with electric motors in particular, is it's a reversible process. So with an internal combustion engine, a gas or diesel engine, you put fuel in it, you burn it, and it comes out as exhaust, and you can't reverse that process, not, at least not in a vehicle. So you can't take the exhaust and turn it back into energy again. With an EV... When you feed electricity into an electric motor, it turns, generates torque, and moves the vehicle forward. When you lift your foot off the accelerator and you start mechanically driving that motor, it automatically becomes a generator. So when you lift off, the kinetic energy of the vehicle moving, the motion of the vehicle, will drive that motor and generate electricity that goes back into the battery. So you actually add range back to the battery. And at the same time, you're slowing the vehicle down and you're not using your brakes, your regular brakes. So you've got less wear on your regular brakes. You're putting energy back in. So regenerative braking is great. And one of the things that's really nice about it, if you have a car like the one I'm driving today, the the Chevy Bolt, that has what they call one-pedal driving, when you're driving in stop-and-go traffic, you've got to go back and forth between the gas and the brake pedal all the time. With an EV with one-pedal driving mode, all you got to do is just modulate the accelerator pedal a little bit you want to slow down, just lift off. You don't take your foot all the way off, just back off a little bit. If you remember driving bumper cars at the carnival, same thing, one pedal. And you can, once you get used to it, uh, usually pretty quickly, then you can just do that. And it's actually a much more relaxing drive. Okay. So if we're at uh, 5% of new vehicle sales are electric at this point, go out 10 years, 15, 25 years, where are we going to be? So our forecast at Guidehouse Insights, uh, our, our most recent forecast for EV adoption for North America we're projecting uh, a little over 30, but probably about 32% market share for EVs in 2030. So seven, eight years from now. Yeah. A little over 30%. Yeah. Okay. In 25 years, almost all of them? In 25 years, yeah, it'll probably be pretty much 100% EVs. A lot of manufacturers have already indicated that they, you know, like legacy manufacturers have indicated that they want to get to 100% EVs by the mid-2030s. GM has said that their target is 2035 to stop selling internal combustion engines. Other manufacturers, a little little slower than that, but a lot of the premium brands especially have said, you know, by 2030, we're not going to be selling any more EVs. Cadillac, for example, has said by 2030, we're going to be an all-EV brand. Same with Buick at GM, you know, and, and others. In Europe and in China, the pace of adoption is even faster. You know, they're looking 100% EVs by 2030, at least for passenger vehicles and for commercial vehicles, it'll be a little bit slower, but still pretty quick. Yeah. Okay, good. Well, Sam, let's talk about autonomous vehicles. And let me start by saying you've used the term advanced driver assistance programs, which may be a better term than autonomous. Autonomous kind of implies 
hands-free, driver goes to sleep kind of a thing. But advanced driver assistance programs, talk about why that's better. Yeah, so there's a spectrum of the automation that you can add to vehicles. What we have today in the market is advanced driver assistance systems, or ADAS. And these are systems where the human driver is still in control. You're still fully responsible. But there are technologies built into the vehicle to help augment the driver to provide better situational awareness, to help in an emergency situation with things like automatic emergency braking if a pedestrian's been detected or some other obstacle in front of the vehicle to help apply the brakes faster and and try to either avoid or mitigate the impact of crash. And then there is automated vehicles. So you got ADAS, driver assistance, and then automated vehicles where when you get to automated vehicles, these are vehicles where the human is no longer responsible for supervising the system. There's a scale in there. So for example, today there are systems like Ford's Blue Cruise, GM Super Cruise that allow hands-free operation on the highway but still require the driver to watch the road and be ready to take control at any time. When you get to an automated system or autonomous system, I prefer the word automated because it's not, it's not really autonomous because, you know, it only does what you tell it to do. You know, you tell it to go to a destination, it goes to that destination, but it doesn't really make decisions, you know, in a fully autonomous way. So automated driving is where the driver, the human no longer has to supervise the system. You tell it where to go, and then you can sit back and relax. You can close your eyes. You can read a book. You can watch a video, take a nap. And today, there are no fully automated systems or self-driving systems, regardless of what it might actually be branded as by a certain manufacturer. There is not a self-driving vehicle that you can buy today anywhere in the world. There are some that are being deployed as uh, robo-taxis and delivery vehicles in limited environments. And just a week or two weeks ago, Cruise, which is um, majority owned by General Motors, started charging fares for driverless rides in San Francisco with their vehicles. Waymo has been doing this in Arizona for a couple of years now in the Phoenix suburbs, and they recently expanded their service area. Argo, which is owned by Ford and Volkswagen, is doing some stuff in a couple places. There's a number of companies in um, China that are doing this. Again, these are all pilot programs with a limited number of vehicles in very restricted areas where, the, where it's been mapped out, they know the system can work. And it's still going to be quite a few more years before we really start to expand that and really start to scale up the availability of these systems. But even then, it's going to be a while, quite a few years before you can go out and buy a vehicle that you can do that. These are all vehicles that are part of fleets, uh, taxi fleets or delivery fleets that are doing this. Good. I understand things like uh, construction vehicles, maybe uh, shuttle buses on a defined route. I mean, those kind of vehicles, not not necessarily the everyday human behind the wheel. Yeah. Um, you know, we've got some shuttle, automated shuttle pilots in various locations, in various cities around the world. And construction vehicles is interesting when you mentioned actually mining vehicles. One of the first applications of fully automated driving was uh, Caterpillar following the DARPA Grand Challenge program in the 2000s. Some of the people that worked on that, including Brian Seleski, who is now the CEO of Argo and later went to, uh, to Waymo, he worked on developing an automated driving system for these, these giant mining dump trucks that you see. Uh, sometimes you see pictures of them. These things are enormous. And they're very dangerous to drive, very difficult to drive. And so there's some of these operating in Australia and, and other locations that are fully automated, fully autonomous. But again, they operate in a limited environment in this mine in his open pit mine, as opposed to being out on the open road. 
So just about every new car has some sort of lane assist. Mm -hmm. Cruise control has been around for a long time Yeah. now. But as you said, there's no car that you can just kind of go to sleep at. No, not today. You know, most new vehicles have some degree of ADAS or driver assistance systems, you know, and that includes lane keeping assist, automatic emergency braking, blind spot monitors with cross traffic alert. That's one of my favorite features, especially, you know, if you're pulling out of a parking space in a parking lot and you can't see, you know, parked between two big SUVs and you can't see if there's anybody coming, those blind spot monitors look down the lane as you start to back out and tell you if there's anybody coming. These are all part of the ADAS suite. And those same sensors are being integrated into more sophisticated systems that eventually get you to automated driving. But today, it's increasingly difficult to find a new vehicle that doesn't have at least some of this capability. Yeah. Now, uh, there have, of course, been some very infamous uh, fatal accidents involving some of these vehicles. Did that set back the effort for developing these? I wouldn't say that it necessarily set back the effort, but it really made everybody think at least everybody responsible, really think about how they're doing this, how they do the testing, how they set the criteria to evaluate, you know, how do you judge if this is good enough, is this, if this is safe enough to deploy in the real world, you know, around humans and around other vehicles. We had in 2018, there was a fatal crash with one of Uber's test vehicles. The safety operator that was in the vehicle was not properly supervising the system, wasn't paying attention, and the system simply did not work well enough and did not recognize a pedestrian, uh, Lane Hertzberg, crossing the road in Tucson, Arizona. And there was no reason why it shouldn't have. It just, the system was just not properly designed. And then, you know, there have been a number of crashes with Tesla vehicles in autopilot. Uh, the first one was in uh, 2016, and there have been a number of others since then, fatal crashes. And part of the problem there is that Tesla has, the way they've marketed that system, Elon Musk continuously going out and talking about how yeah, our, our vehicles are going to be full self-driving with you know, just software updates. We've got all the hardware we need, which is just not true. And calling it something like autopilot or selling you know, a, a feature that they call full self-driving when it simply is not anywhere near ready to be fully autonomous, but a lot of drivers think, you know, well, if, if the CEO of the company is telling me that it can do this, you know, then I, I should be able to do that. I can take my hands off the wheel, even though it's not designed as a hands-off system. So that has, I would say it's slowed down the hype. Let's put it that way. It hasn't necessarily slowed down the work, you know, and hype or not, it would have taken at least as long as it has taken to really mature the technology. So I think it's probably a good I hate to say that, you know, a fatal crash is ever a good thing, but the idea that it has made a lot of people think carefully about how we promote this technology, because people have to trust it if, you're, if it's going to be accepted widely. So, you know, making sure they take a safe approach and make sure that when they test it and develop it, that they really validate that everything is working as expected. And I think that's going to be the key to widespread adoption of this technology. Okay. And so the, the idea that some have promoted that someday you'll call up a driverless vehicle, will show up at your home, you'll tell it where to go, you'll sit back and watch a movie while it takes you there. How far away are we from that kind of world? Well, if you live in Chandler, Arizona or San Francisco, um, you can do that today. So it's, it, it is possible today within certain limited geographic areas. And that's possible today. When will you be able to do it anywhere? We'll see it gradually expanding over the course of the next five to 10 years. And in 2030, it'll be a lot more widespread than it is today.
Okay, interesting. And uh, talk about the stages, stage two, stage four. Talk about what, what these mean. Yeah, so the Society of Automotive Engineers a number of years ago developed a taxonomy for this uh, a, a nomenclature for automated driving and six levels of automated driving from level zero where there's no automation, no assistance systems at all. Level five, that's the highest level. That means a, a vehicle that is capable of driving anywhere under any conditions that a human can drive. And then in between, you've got this progressive scale. So most of what we have on the road today would be level one systems. These are basic ADAS systems where each function is operates individually. So this is where you have things like lane keeping assist or adaptive cruise control or blind spot monitoring. These are all functions that are part of level one. Level two is where you start to combine steering and speed control together. And so that's where things like Ford's Blue Cruise, GM Super Cruise, Nissan's ProPilot Assist 2 that's coming on the Aria later this year. These combine steering and, and speed control. So when you get on a highway, it'll maintain a safe distance to the vehicle ahead of you. It'll keep you centered in the lane. And in some cases, uh, like Super Cruise, it can even automatically do lane changes. And also Autopilot is also a level two system. I personally am not fond of the level nomenclature because there's some ambiguity there. And it, it's, it doesn't, it's not really meaningful to consumers what these levels actually mean. I actually prefer a different way of describing them, which is feet off, hands off, eyes off, brain off. And so today, what you have in most vehicles is you might have feet off, you know, so cruise control. And then hands off is where you get into the super cruise, blue cruise type systems where you're hands off but you're still eyes on and brain on. So you have to watch the road and you have to be attentive and be ready to take control at any time. The next level would be eyes off, but still brain on. So feet off, hands off, eyes off, brain on. And that would correspond roughly to what uh, the SAE thing describes as level three, where the vehicle is capable of doing the driving task under certain limited conditions. And the driver doesn't have to supervise 100% of the time, but they do have to be ready to take control when it reaches the limits of its operating domain. And the first, the first systems like that on the road are, there's one in, in Germany from Mercedes-Benz called DrivePilot, and it can operate on highways without the driver watching the road all the time, but only it speeds up to about 37 miles an hour. So when you're in stop-and-go traffic, you have a traffic jam pilot system. And Honda has a similar system in, in Japan on a very limited number of vehicles. And then the next step is brain off, and that's where the human does not ever have to take control. And this would be either level four or level five. The only difference between level four and five is at level four, there's a limited area where the system can operate. Level five, it can drive anywhere. Level five is what Elon Musk has talked about that his vehicles will be capable of doing. And, and frankly, they won't ever be able to with the, with the hardware they have. But that's another story. But level four, this is what you see from Cruise, Waymo, Argo, Motional in Las Vegas and, and various other companies where within a, a certain defined geographic area or, and, it, and the criteria the, to limit it can be literally anything. So it can be, a, it's usually a geographic area as a minimum. In some cases, it's time of day or weather conditions where the vehicle can operate without a human supervising it and without the need for a human to take over. And when you get to that level, the system has to have redundancy built in. Because if you think about today, you know, you've got assistance systems on your car like ABS or power brakes, you know, power brake assist, or power steering assist. When those things fail, you can still drive the car. If your power steering fails, you can still steer the vehicle. The human is the redundant system in that case. 
You just have to put more effort into turning the wheel to go where you want, but you can still drive the vehicle. When you have a vehicle where there may not be a, a human in there, or there may not be, there may or may not be any human controls like a steering wheel, now you have to build in redundant hardware that if your steering actuator fails, you have to have a backup one. If your brake actuator fails, you've got to have a backup one that can still stop the vehicle. And so at level four or five, the system has to be capable of bringing itself to a safe stop in, a, in what they call a minimum risk condition, but basically pulling over to a safe location where you're out of traffic and, and do that without a human having to take over. Because there will be times, you know, if you've got something like a robo-taxi, where there's not going to be anybody in the vehicle. If, you're, if it's between rides, there's nobody there to take over. So it has to be capable of doing that on its own. And that's something that today, as I said, is in very limited deployment. And that will grow over the next decade. Okay. And finally, given how long some people own cars, 15, 20 years or longer, is it going to be a problem to have autonomous vehicles and, you know, guys driving old gas-powered vehicles and so on on the road at the same time? Is that going to be an issue? Yeah. I mean, that is a serious concern. This is something that the developers of these automated systems have to take into account, is how they interoperate with human-driven vehicles. In most cases, that's going to be the situation for probably at least the next 20 or 30 years. What we will probably start to see is in some places, you know, maybe some city center locations, as the technology matures, you know, maybe by the end of the decade, there will be some locations where human-driven vehicles are not allowed into those spaces anymore, and only automated vehicles can operate there. When that happens, you know, the problem becomes a little simpler. But in the meantime, in most places, you're still going to have to deal with the variable that is the human driver. So the systems have to be smart enough to take into account what is a human likely to do and how might they respond to what the software is doing. And you know, a great example of this, uh, a few years back, there was a, a relatively minor crash with one of Waymo's test vehicles in California where it was driving along in the right-hand lane, the curb lane, and there was a, a construction zone that came up. And there was a bus in the adjacent lane to the left that the automated test vehicle assumed that the bus was going to stop and let it in to go around this construction zone. And the bus driver did not stop. And so the Waymo vehicle ran into the side of the bus. It was minor damage. Nobody was injured or anything. But that's the kind of scenario that can happen. And so one of the things that you know, increasingly these companies are looking at is putting in things like vehicle-to-vehicle -vehicle communications so that the vehicles can indicate their intent to each other. As humans, we do this all the time. We use nonverbal cues when we're driving. You pull up to a, a four-way stop, and you know, two or three cars get there at the same time, and you, know, you wave your hand, and you, know, you say, oh, you go ahead first. You know, and we provide these, these cues to each other, and we're signaling our intent that way. It's a lot harder for a vehicle to do that. So adding things like communications between the vehicles so that you know, an automated vehicle can get a signal from a human-driven vehicle in the adjacent lane, but that vehicle is not slowing down. The driver has not let off the accelerator. They're going at a constant speed. And then the automated vehicle can say, okay, I'm going to wait three seconds and let this vehicle pass, and then I'll pull up. So those are the sorts of things that developers of these systems have to take into account and that will be challenges as we go forward and, and these vehicles have to coexist on the road. Yeah. Makes me want to invite you back, you know, every five years to uh, <laughs> for the brave new world of EVs and AVs. Well, hopefully we don't have to wait five years. But. Right. Great. 
Well, I want to thank Sam for being here today on Inside Michigan Business with the latest and greatest on the automotive mobility market. Once again, I'm John Gallagher, and welcome back, and we'll see you at the next time. Thanks very much. All right, that wraps up this episode of the Inside Michigan Business Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to receive programming notifications and special event announcements by going to InsideMichiganBusiness.com. Follow us on your favorite social media platform and wherever podcasts are downloaded. Thank you for listening.